0: Springvale Church, good morning. Yeah, what's going on? We're good? Yeah, new series we're starting today, uh, Stories Jesus Told. Uh, Yesterday, I just got the uh, DNA results. I sent away kind of my DNA test for the ancestry thing, and I got uh, my results yesterday, and I am 40% Scottish. Um, It's a surprise to me. I thought there would be more Jamaican in there, but... If you know, you know. Um, But it it was very interesting. I think I have to like invest in a kilt or binge some Brave Hearts. I don't know, because that's what makes you Scottish, I guess. But my Scottish brothers and sisters, welcome, especially uh, this morning. Uh, But it's funny, I I was thinking yesterday about the beginning of this series and thinking that um, we're talking about stories that Jesus told, but even every cell in our body tells a story that there's something actually hardwired in us that tells a story about who we are, uh, about where we're coming from, about our purpose and and our identity. And Jesus told a lot of stories. Most of, many of, the most celebrated and known kind of memorable stories that Jesus told, some of his most memorable teachings are actually told in the form of of story. Uh, Whether it's the prodigal son, uh, the good Samaritan, the parable about the speck and the log in our eye, or the parable of the mustard seed. Some of these are most of the, some of the most well-known teachings of Jesus, and they're told in the form of, of story. And I think that's significant for us to think about because we're all hardwired for story. That most of our lives is actually spent in kind of a story-formed world, Uh, I won't bore you, there's some interesting neuroscience kinda looking at the brain right now and how we actually think we're far more logical than we are, but that we are actually hardwired for story more than anything. Before we're emotional or logical, we're actually looking for stories to kinda hook values and, and purpose and identity onto. Story is kinda like the lingua franca of the human mind, right? And every single one of us, wherever we are spiritually or on religious things or faith, we all live out a dominant story. A dominant story that shapes our lives. A dominant story that gives us meaning and purpose. It provides a mental map for our values and why we do what what we do. And one way you can think about it, the story that we live in is the story that we live out. And that's really significant. And culture today is really just, if we're paying paying attention, the product of the stories that we've been told. Every day, all week, through whatever we're consuming or or, or reading or giving our attention to, is a script that is shaping us with, with story. Whether it's the story of achievement, that if you work hard enough, everything will go well. You'll get that job. You'll get that lifestyle. You'll be somebody. That's a story. The story of consumerism, that if only you have this, just fill in the blank, make it to this socioeconomic bracket, then you'll live the Canadian dream, right? You'll have the right clothes, the, the right house, live in the right neighborhood, and that will validate you. You'll live the good life, but that the good life comes with a price tag. That's the story of consumerism. Or the story of romance. Your main problem is you just gotta find the one, right? Everybody who's married is like, I found the one and marriage is awesome, but so hard, right? But the story of romance is just like this, just, that's your main problem, your other half. You just gotta find that other half, then everything will work out. And on and on and on it goes. We are told stories. Uh, this week, I became very aware of how many stories I tell myself. I might be the only one here, but probably not. How many times do you like, text somebody, and then you don't get a text back, and 40 minutes later, you've told yourself an entire story as to why they did not text you back after you saw the three dots of them starting to text you back. It's because they don't value my time. It's because they're too busy with other things that they think, right? And then you go, and you're like, what? Like, I just told an entire story about that person's motives and buried them in the ground in my head, and then you find out, it's like, well, because their baby vomited on them <laughs> mid-text, right? And you're like, oh, okay, my story was false. Or why did so-and-so look at me like that? And then you tell a story, right? So we do it all the time, that we have this story that we live in, and then we actually end up living out that same story. There's a famous experiment that was done in 1944 by two German researchers called Heider and Simmel. And what they did is they showed people this illustration that I'm going to show you right now. There was 120 people in the room. They showed this illustration and then asked, what did you see? Okay, let's watch. What did you see? 120 people in the room, three of them gave the logical, very Spock-like answer, which is triangles and a circle on a two-dimensional space. But 117 people out of 120 told what? A story. And almost every single one of them was different. Why? Because story is stitched Into how we make sense of the world. Some of you right now need to just pray a prayer and just against your aversion to that triangle right now. Just like eliminate the hate from your heart. Right? That bully triangle. But it's because we can't help but make sense of our lives through story. Now, sometimes you get the logical, rational thing. You're just not the funnest person at the party, amen? Right? But the average Canadian lives more, our daily lives, more in the world of story than in reality. The average Canadian consumes about four hours of storytelling per day. Whether that's through Netflix or YouTube or, or TikTok or other social media platforms or gaming, whatever the case may be, that we live the majority of our lives in story. Pastor Joshua Chatra wrote a book called Telling a Better Story on exactly this, and he says this. The likes of Netflix, Amazon, and YouTube have replaced our sage elders around the campfire, but the stories are still being told. Our big life-explaining stories are communicated through a myriad of smaller stories we hear and tell each day. And they frame how we live and answer the big questions of life. Who are we? What is the meaning of life? What is the fundamental problem, and how can it be fixed? And is there reason to have hope? I think he's right. That we all have to be a bit more honest with some of the stories that we live out because it's the one that we're living in. And this is exactly why I think Jesus told so many stories. Because they're powerful. They, They shape us. Some of you are going to remember more about Margaret's story than anything I say up here this morning. Because there's something powerful about story. And there's also something very significant about the fact that the Bible is mainly story. If you're new to the Bible or just kind of exploring Jesus, most of this is not laws and do this and do that. It's actually a story because the Bible's aim is to shape us, not just inform us with information, but to invite us into the story it tells, the true story of reality and to engage our imagination, to draw us into a lived experience about the good God that it tells us about. And Jesus tells lots of stories for exactly this reason. So, we're going to look at parables over the course of this series. Parables are just short stories that really stimulate our conscience and are meant to kind of stir us to action. And specifically, almost every time Jesus tells a story, it's about the kingdom of God. He's trying to communicate something true about who God is, who He is, and how we are to enter into living under the rule and reign of a good God. It's not just enough for us to examine these stories and go, oh, cool story. But that it actually is paradoxical on purpose. That often Jesus will tell a parable that actively reveals something, but also conceals something at the exact same time. That it reveals the message to people who normally don't have access to him. The people who are not elite, the uneducated, the outcasts, the so-called sinners and tax collectors, are invited into understanding who he is through story. But parables also conceal the message to the so-called enlightened, to the elite, to the religious professionals, the ones who think that they have things figured out, and kind of approach Jesus with arrogance or crossed arms, like, what does this guy got? Often he'll tell a parable when he's got those kinds of people in the crowd because he wants to bring them down a notch and humble them. And often, this is why Jesus will quote prophetic books from the Old Testament like Isaiah 6 9 that says, Those who have ears, let them hear. Now, that's not literal. Most people had ears in the first century, just so you know. But it's saying, Are you actually listening? the context of that original verse from Isaiah is that Isaiah is actually criticizing the people who think that they have everything figured out. And they're just so fascinated by their own ideas, right? So they get on TikTok and they tell the world about their ideas. We're no different. We're so fascinated by what we think and how smart we are and our spiritual opinions that apparently the world needs to hear, right? And Isaiah, just like Jesus says, those who have ears, let them hear. Are you actually listening? If you miss it, that's Jesus for, if you think you have nothing to learn, you'll learn nothing. If you have everything figured out already, whether it's on God and faith or sexuality and gender or racial and social justice, then you are not teachable and you won't learn anything. That's the invitation through parable. He uses parables to separate the learners from the so-called experts, the seekers, the genuine seekers from the so-called experts. So the question to us as we go through these parables over the next few weeks is how many of us are truly listening? This is important today because all week we're culturally conditioned to critique and review everything. You catch that? Do you like this? Do you not? Grumpy face, smiley face, how many stars, right? We do, we do this every, so we go through our entire week and we live as if we are the center of the ecosystem of everything that is valuable and then we do this, right? So we're culturally conditioned to just review and critique everything. Our Uber drivers, our movies, our friends' pictures don't like that jacket, thumbs down, right? Tweets, posts, whether we like them or not. Everything exists for us to critique it. And we do that with Sundays too. We do it with church too. Do I like this sermon? How many stars am I going to give this sermon today? While you rush home to get your deli sandwiches, three stars for Dustin's sermon. Five stars for his jacket. It's a technicolored dream coat. (laughs) We do this all the time though. Right? How many stars will I give the kids ministry? How many stars will I give my chair? How many stars will I give the coffee? How many stars will I give the foyer? <laughs> now listen, there's a place for evaluation, of course. But this creep, the subtle creep of living to review and critique everything doesn't allow us to have the posture that Jesus calls for as an active seeker of what he's actually saying. And parables, parables encourage exactly that. Alright, so we're going to look at our first parable. It's the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, in Luke chapter 8. Now this is a meta-parable, and it's funny because I'm going to tell you, we're going to look at Jesus' parable about parables. That's all we're going to do today, okay? So he tells this parable to explain why he tells parables, right? So in Luke 8, verse 4 through 8, he starts, and it says this, As a large crowd was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from every town, So remember, that's the audience. He's like, there's a lot of people here. Parable time, right? So he said in a parable, "'A sower went out to sow his seed. "'As he sowed, some seed fell along the path. "'It was trampled on, and the birds of the sky devoured it. "'Other seed fell on the rock. "'When it grew, it withered away, since it lacked moisture. "'Other seed fell among thorns, "'and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. "'And still other seed fell on good ground.' And when it grew up, it produced fruit, a hundred times what was sown. As he said this, he called out to the crowd, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. This is so unremarkable. Like Jesus gets this amazing opportune moment with a big crowd. This is his sales moment. If he's going to market his message and grow, like church growth book, terrible way to start, right? He, he tells such an unremarkable thing that honestly, I think the crowd would have been like, what? Like, I came here to hear this guy. There's all this buzz about him of like, oh, there's the Messiah. Jesus is healing people. He's teaching. You should hear this guy's sermons. And then he gets up and he's like, farmers sowed seed and some of it landed on different ground. Those who have ears let them, let them hear. And you're like, right? And the disciples are confused because then they approach him and go, what? Can you explain that? Like, there's gotta be something better in there than I have heard, right? But here's what's interesting. He tells this because there's so many expectations about who Jesus is and what Jesus should be like. There's so many conflicting expectations about what the Messiah should be like when the Messiah comes. There's so many expectations about what the kingdom of God actually looks like in the real world. And most people at the time, it looked like military dominance, Showing up and kicking Rome out of the halls of power. Voting for the right candidate and having kind of the moral majority in culture. That's the kingdom of God. Be careful before you say amen. Jesus constantly turns that upside down. He constantly turns that upside down. The idea that if only we have the right candidates, if only we have the right um, voice in the halls of power, that then we will affect social and cultural change. It hasn't worked. Jesus' vision for social change is so different than all political options of his day. And in fact, Jesus said very little about the burning political issues of his day. That's what's blatantly missing from much of what Jesus talks about. Whether it's Roman occupation, whether it's the corrupt tax system, Jesus says very little about that and instead, he confuses expectations and calls for introspection on what am I actually expecting of God versus what am I expected to do? And he lays out an alternative moral and ethical vision for the kingdom of God, constantly. There's a subversive power behind the kingdom of God that Jesus reveals through parables, but conceals to those who really just want Jesus to show up and fix their thing. And that's what parables do. And I think that's exactly why Jesus tells the parable here to the crowds, because he's like, perfect. I got a lot of people here. Time to mess things up. That's why he does it. He could have saved the weird parables for his disciples, right? He could have just been like, once I have the 12, then I'll tell them the weird stuff. I'll just tell like the really good flashy stuff, up front to the crowds. But he actually does the exact opposite of that. Because it's not about the sower. It's not about the effectiveness of that message. It's about how we actually respond to it. So imagine the scene, right? Imagine kind of this huge crowd. Imagine that they're sitting kind of on the the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And just across the sea, you can actually see fields everywhere. And you can see farmers, just little kind of ants, right, walking up and down in their fields, sowing seed. And Jesus is like, the kingdom of God is like that. You're like, what? That's so generic. It's so normal. It's so ordinary. But when you start to understand what the original audience would have, a farmer would often just have a big bag of seed over their shoulder and just kind of almost recklessly just walk and broadcast seed up and down on the plot of land. Jesus is making a point here about the seed itself, but also the sower, and the response to the seeds. We're gonna look at all of those right now. In verse nine through 11, then his disciples came and asked him, what does this parable mean? I honestly think they're frustrated. because, like, this was it, Jesus, to get, some power behind our movement so we can take Rome down, and then you did that, right? So he said, the secrets or the mystery of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but to the rest it is in parables so that, he quotes Isaiah six, looking they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Stop there for a second. So right away he's given us the key to now understand what he just said about the significance of this parable. There's four types of ground, four types of soil, which he says, he's going to show us, is the four types of hearers, four types of postures towards his teaching, and that the seed going out, being broadcast freely, is the word of God. And that's very significant, because this sower is very generous with the broadcasting of the seed. He's not looking for the proper soil. to so be like, as long as you're like this, then I'll give you a little bit of the word of God. He is recklessly right? Generously broadcasting the seed. And Jesus is saying, that's him. That he is giving this open invitation to come and understand God's word and to understand through God's word who God is and to understand the self-disclosure and the nature and character of what this God is like. He doesn't say, hey, what's everyone's opinion about what God is like? Tell me stories about what you think. Let's have a sharing circle and tell stories about what we think God is. He says the word of God is the self-disclosure and portrait of who God is. And church, that's the unique claim that we make about the Bible that we teach from. That it's the word of God. That it actually says what is true about the nature and character of God. And what's most important is how we respond to it. Amen. Amen. Yeah. That's important. And Jesus is saying that God is generous with the sharing of his word, and that's good news. That he's not tight-fisted with trying to reveal who he is and what he's like just to a select few, but that this God is a God of grace and mercy and wishes all people to come to know him, but we see four different types of soil, four different responses or postures towards this word. The first In verse 12, we see the seed along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So this is the path. The seed lands on the path, and it's eaten up by birds, Jesus says right away. Now that's inevitable, right? If you're going broadcasting seed, it's inevitable that some will fall on the path around the fields, And when that happens, that never sinks into the soil. There's not enough moisture for it to germinate. There's no nutrients there. And it says that the birds come and just pluck it out and eat it. So this first posture is the posture of a hard heart. Just kind of indifferent. Just like a general spiritual meh to hearing the gospel, to hearing the word of God. Not interested, not changed. And it says that they do not believe and they are not saved. Now, it's a tough reality to understand, but that is the case. That there's people that just nothing seems to penetrate their life. Nothing seems to move them to spiritual curiosity or humility to explore the things of God. Jesus says this. Then he mentions the devil, and that's always a weird one, right? Because today, culturally, we do strange things with like the demonic and the supernatural and the devil, uh, some, we kind of just see it as nonsense, as like, yeah, some pre-modern, archaic beliefs of the past. Others of us have an unhealthy obsession with all things ghost and paranormal, right? Hollywood does, so we kind of have like exorcism movies once every year, and they're always terrible, right? Or we have ghost hunters, you're walking around be like, Uncle Tom, is that you, right? With the thing. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Others of us, um, you know, we think it's like listening to heavy metal or getting tattoos, which is demonic, right? Which I'm in trouble. I like heavy metal and I have tattoos. Or it's like any inconvenience calls for spiritual warfare, right? So, all inconveniences, like almond milk instead of coconut milk at Starbucks, demon, get out, right? Like flat tire on the way to church, Satan did it, get out, right? So, there's all, all sorts of ways that we tend to approach this, but notice what Jesus says here about the presence of evil and the presence of the demonic, and specifically the devil. He says that the target isn't you or me or our kids or our churches. His target is the Word of God. The target is God's Word, the target is who God says He is and what God says. And the devil only shows up in the story after the seed is sown. You catch that? He doesn't need to be there unless the word of God is there. He doesn't need to be there to try to twist and and present lies unless there is truth going out. His main work is to keep people from knowing and experiencing the beauty of God through the word of God. That's That's the main tactic, biblically, we see here. And that was always the strategy if you're paying attention to the story of the Bible. You go back to the garden and he attacks with the question, did God really say? In the garden story, that's the most dangerous question because we always end up giving the wrong answer to the right question. Did God really say? Well, we need to ask that. That's a really important question. But the presence of evil all throughout scripture is that that's the core problem, Did God really say? Well, I don't know. I don't really like that. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna define what's right and good and true and beautiful for ourselves. Then we're gonna pursue that as if we are God. And that's just the narrative arc of the whole Bible, right? That strategy has not changed. Jesus is making an important point here about the strategy of the enemy. God's not God. God's not good. God doesn't care. Look out for yourself. Live your truth. Live your life do you? That is the same lie from the garden, and it's the same lie that we see here in the parable. So just hear me clearly. The enemy does not need to attack you for him to be working against you. Does not need to attack you to be working against you. All he needs to do is keep God's word and truth from any kind of meaningful transformation in your life, which means. He doesn't need to work against praying to any god or the cosmos or to the energies out there. You can do that. Doesn't need to work against celebrating and attending Easter or Christmas services at church. Why? Because all of those things can be done without actually being changed by the power of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you didn't even know evil was a thing until you started paying attention to Jesus. And that's where he does his work. Let's keep going. The second soil, rock, right? Verse 13, And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. They're like, yes. But having no root, these believe for a while, and they fall away in a time of testing. This is rock, or no moisture, not able to take root, this kind of soil, the bedrock would, would only have been like a few inches under the surface so then when the seed starts to sprout, it shrivels up and dies because the roots can't go deep enough. This heart posture is, is shallow and temporary. You get really excited about spiritual things for a while, get excited about following Jesus, you get super zealous, maybe too zealous, you devour scripture, books and sermons and podcasts, you can't get enough until things get real. Until a testing comes, Jesus says. And then there's a following away, falling away. Until there's actually a cost to following Jesus. You're like, I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. I thought Jesus was gonna make my thing better. Like I thought he was just gonna like fix all my stuff. We just heard that in Margaret's story. Starts following Jesus, loses her twin children. And the question is, what? That is either gonna anchor you deeper into the, into the uh, reliance on the word of God and who God is or you're gonna walk away. But here's the thing. No one, regardless of where you are in spiritual things, is immune to suffering, immune to storms, immune to difficulties and testing. Whether you're rich or poor, young or old, religious or not, testing is coming or has come. And those tests, those trials always expose the roots of what we've built our hope on. The roots of what we've built our lives on. So Jesus just said, your faith is actually exposed by how you respond to those trials. Getting rid of Christianity doesn't solve suffering. It just gets rid of any possible explanation or meaning in the midst of suffering. You're still left to deal with the fact that there are evil things and hard things that happen in this life. And those times of trial and testing actually expose the roots and expose what you live for and what you're looking to hope for. That's the second type of soil. The third, in verse 14, as for the seed that fell among thorns, so think weeds, these are the ones who, when they have heard, they go on their own way and they are choked with worries, riches, and the pleasures of life, and they produce no mature fruit this heart is preoccupied distracted immature they hear the gospel they receive it they do Christian stuff but they're too wrapped up with trivial things to actually do anything meaningful notice Jesus mentions three weeds there kind of three thorns cares riches that's worries riches money and pleasures of this life Jesus is making the point that good things can distract us from the most important things. Amen? In Luke 21, 34, Jesus says, Watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down by the cares of this life. Not that good things aren't good. He's not a cosmic killjoy in the sky, kind of just waiting to blow the whistle against any foul every time we we enjoy ourselves. But he is saying that good things are good, but they make terrible gods that if we settle to live for good things, we can actually miss the truly meaningful, ultimate things. I read a book uh, recently by an author called Uche Anazor called Overcoming Apathy. He said that society is numb to the meaningful and alive to the trivial, describing our cultural moment. So if that's the case, we end up being just like so alive to the trivial at all times, we end up losing touch with the meaningful, because we're so wrapped up in indulgence about nonsense. Honestly, some of you spend your weeks not doing bad, sinful things. They're just dumb, right? Like, they're just trivial. They're not like, this is evil. I'm living an evil life. But they're not meaningful. They're not significant in any way. They don't have any eternal value. They're just things that you enjoy. And those are good, they're beautiful, but they're always meant to point past themselves to the good God who gives all things, right? So being wrapped up with the trivial will keep us from maturity. It'll keep us from actually living for the things that are truly significant. So if you find yourself triggered by trivial things and things that honestly don't really matter, this is your heart posture, and honestly, the trivial things that flood our week and our social media feeds numb us so much that it leads us to developing an apathetic heart to things that are actually meaningful. That's the danger of it. That's the numbness of our heart. Or just hopelessness, right? Just like, you go just kind of like stream or you just watch the news or you listen to the radio, whatever it is, and you're just like, man, like I'm not able to make a difference anyway, so why bother? So we end up having like a truncated view of what is meaningful, of what's truly significant. And Jesus continues to turn the good life on its head when he teaches like this. Then the fourth soil. This is the good news. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, I think I'm one of the first three soils. We get to the fourth soil. This is the soil that we can cultivate in our heart that Jesus talks about. Watch this, verse 15. But the seed in the good ground, the healthy soil... These are those who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, they hold on to it, and, and by enduring, they produce fruit. This fourth posture is the fruitful, faithful hearers. Not perfectly, but fruitful, right? Farming is tough, sweaty, patient work, right? This kind of fruit in our life is sweaty, hard, patient work, There is a long game to developing this kind of fruitfulness and health and cultivating that in our hearts. And the emphasis that Jesus has here is he says that those have a good and noble heart and they hold it fast. That's the word for persevere. Then he says what kind of yield of fruitfulness happens from that. It's a hundredfold, which is staggering, like a tenfold as, as far as what I know about like green thumbs and farming, which is little. Like tenfold is great. A hundredfold is staggering. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow tired. Let us persevere, right? Let us run with endurance. Let us not grow tired of doing good for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So Springville, the key here is that a fruitful life isn't just a busy life or a productive life by whatever standard we like, or a so-called successful life by a definition that our culture has. But a truly fruitful life is a life spent loving the right things in the right order. A truly fruitful life is abiding in Jesus and enduring to that end. Often we think about a fruitful Christian life or we think about the signs of like, what does it mean to be a Christian or how do you know you're a Christian? Well, Jesus just said that there's gotta be evident fruit in our lives. Um, the letter that James writes in the New Testament says that we have to be doers, not just hearers of the word, right? And that our that faith without works is dead, that there's gotta be something that actually shows up. James is making the point that dead faith is faith that doesn't actually change your life. And Jesus shows up and says, You will be known by your fruit. That what you're doing with your life actually points to the root of your life. And then Jesus finishes this parable a couple verses later, and he says, Take care then how you hear. So you see those bookends, he brings it all back together, and he brings it back to our laps, and he says, Are you actually listening? Are you actually reflecting? Do we just kind of come week in and week out and go, That was interesting? And then move about our day, move about our weekend. Are we preoccupied with the trivial? Are you preoccupied right now with what's happening later? That, that there's a, a serious care and a caution here that Jesus gives to say, take care, be careful how you hear. So as we reflect, as, as we pray, as we sing this morning, we need to answer the question, how are we responding to God's word? How are we hearing it? How are we prioritizing it? How are we responding and reflecting on it? And is it producing healthy fruit? And also, secondly, right now, again, totally free, without judgment, what soil is your heart most like right now? This week, today, some of us, we haven't received the word, and we're not interested. We don't know God, we don't want him, And because we don't think we need him, we don't desire him. Only the word of God can change that heart. Others of us, we're just shallow, superficial, not bad per se, not disobedient explicitly, but we're just not growing. We're not doing anything of of significance. And the temporary things just tend to always choke out eternal things. And still others of us we're just distracted by the pleasures of life. We're doing our thing. But regardless of where we are, we all want to move towards cultivating that, for, that fourth posture the soil of, of, of fruitfulness and faithfulness. Slow, day by day, steady growth. A deeper love and trust in who God is, even in the midst of stuff that we don't understand that we would be after good things, after God's heart, that we would abide and grow in Jesus, that we would be serious about caring for orphans and widows, serious about living lives as servants to others, sacrificial for the sake of the kingdom of God because of Jesus our King, amen? Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we thank you that you aren't a God that just kind of hides away and tells us to kind of stumble towards you to figure out who you are, but that you are a God across history that reveals what you are like, that you are good, that you are beautiful, that you are who we are created for. And we're thankful that you have done that most explicitly for the work of Jesus Christ, and that we can respond today to the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that a new rule and reign in our heart and lives can start by acknowledging who you are, and that it would produce fruit because you promise that it will. So I pray for each of our hearts this morning and throughout the rest of this series that you would use the parables that you told Jesus to rewrite the story that we live in so that it would change the story that we live out. And we ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name we pray.